Hello all, this is your host Paul, the creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, offering you a warm welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, and big thanks to you for joining me here today. On the show each week, we tend to look at the more forgotten, obscure and unfamiliar cases from over here, a mixture of unsolved cases and accounts of unfamiliar crimes. That's what I look for to host here. And there's always an open invite for any budding true crime writers out there. If you know of a case that you think, ooh yeah, that would make for a good episode, and you fancy researching and writing one up, then please get in touch by all means. Last week was the second listener-created episode that I've done on the show, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, it was absolutely brilliant, and it went down very well due to the responses that I've had. Plus, I'm not some sort of oracle. There are bound to be suitable cases for the show that I overlook, or I'm not aware of, but somebody else will be. So if you fancy hearing your case presented in a future episode, links to contact me are in the show notes as ever this week. Big thanks and shout outs to my latest Patreon supporters also, Scott Quinn, Christian Diaz, Rene Roscombe and Sarah Rogers. Thanks very much and I hope you all enjoy the bonus content. Bonus episode 6 is now nearly finished for its release on the first day of the month. If I have missed anyone, as I've explained before, I tend to mention pledges that are made against when I've recorded, and that day changes each week because I'm a rolling shift worker, and this podcast works around that. But it will never be more than a week, and I do always get round to mentioning everybody. If anyone is interested in supporting the show, which can be in a variety of ways, I mean, a review goes a long way, or submitting a case for inclusion, as I've just mentioned, or if you wish to hear exclusive episodes of the show, then for a reasonable contribution each month, head on over to the True Crime Enthusiast Patreon page and guess where that link is? This episode marks the midway point of the second series of the show. That came around unbelievably quick, didn't it? Well, it's quick on one hand, but if you only knew what goes into creating a show such as this, I wonder if you'd feel the same way. It's a hell of a lot of work, but it's such a rewarding thing to do, so I don't mind the hours that I spend researching, writing and recording because it's my passion after all. I'm sure any fellow hosts out there who are listening are hearing me with that. A hell of a lot goes into this podcast in Malarkey, doesn't it? An absolutely unbelievable amount. But part of what I've come to love about it also is the community. I have harped on many times before, but the true crime community is absolutely spot on and so helpful. What a fantastic bunch of people that I've gotten to know so far. So I'm only too happy to chip in and help out in my way, and one way that I do this is by the inclusion of promos. This week I have Lux and Sam from the UK-based true crime comedy podcast, Killing It The Crimecast. Now this is a relatively new one, and the hosts bring a mix of all sorts of recounted true crime cases from all across the globe, and I shall hand you over to them so they can explain exactly what they're about. Hi guys, I'm Lux. And I'm Sam. And we host Killing It, the Crimecast. Every week, each of us tells the other about a crazy and interesting true crime case we've come across. Some highlights include... A countess who bathed in blood. A machete-wielding homophobe. Munchausen by proxy leading to matricide. Murderous messages written in lipstick. And a religious pastor being bludgeoned to death with an electric guitar. We both love true crime, we love talking about it, and we hope you guys will enjoy listening to it. So check out Killing It, the Crimecast on whatever podcast app you damn well please. Bye-bye. Thanks very much, guys. Killing it, the crime cast it. Available from all good podcast sources. So why don't you just go and jump in and have a good old binge at it. Now here on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I'll begin this week with a short excerpt taken from an interview given to the Birmingham Evening Mail in 2014. 
He left me for dead and I'm lucky to be alive. But he doesn't deserve a burial and I hope that he rots in hell because he is the devil himself. I wanted to ask him why he did those crimes. I wanted answers to my questions and now they will never be answered. This statement came from a 62-year-old mother of two and grandmother Julia Taylor and indeed the statement is true. What she was being interviewed about was that 54 years ago this year Julia was indeed left for dead by a man who many still to this day consider to be the devil himself. Thankfully though, that devil has now long since gone back to hell. Now his name may not be such a familiar one as others of like, but his crimes, and I do stress crimes, are some of the most notorious in British criminal history. They also meant that an area of outstanding natural beauty in the UK, a former royal forest, is forever associated with them. It should be advised that this week's episode contains descriptions of crimes involving children that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we look back at the case of the Monster of Cannock Chase. Cannock Chase is an area of outstanding natural beauty in the English county of Staffordshire and it's the smallest of these throughout the UK. Various available descriptions of it complement its rolling hills, its purple heather and miles of idyllic woodland and leisurely walks. It has many trekking and mountain bike trails and more recently has been a venue that has hosted several outdoor concerts by some big name acts as part of the Forestry Commission Forest Tour. The only time I've ever been to Cannock Chase myself is to one of these when I went some years ago with some friends and we had a drunken weekend watching the charlatans play. And the Quo were there the night before actually as well. Everybody loves the Quo, don't they? But being the true crime buff that I am, when I was in the area, my mind was of course cast back to the case that I'm about to recount this week. On the 1st of December 1964, nine-year-old Julia Taylor was out near her home in the sprawling housing estate of Leemore in the small town of Blockswich, which is near the larger industrial town of Walsall in the West Midlands. Julia was alone and unsupervised at a time when it was still considered safe to let kids play out. Today it's drummed into children about stranger danger. I still remember the adverts from when I was a kid, Charlie Says and the one with the guy trying to lure the schoolgirl into the car by offering her to come and see some puppies. He actually went on to do quite a bit of stuff with Victoria Wood, that guy, and I believe he was in Emmerdale as well. But perhaps in the mid-1960s, it wasn't a subject widely acknowledged or talked about, and certainly one not as prominent in people's minds as it is today. So when a man with a kindly manner approached Julia, calling himself Uncle Len, and claiming to be an uncle of her mother's, she wasn't initially phased or fearful. The trusting child saw nothing sinister when the man told her that he'd come to fetch her to take her to her aunt's house and she got willingly into the car with him. Instead, Uncle Len took Julia three miles away to a nature reserve just off Bentley Lane in the nearby town of Willenhall. He stripped her, then he raped her. If that wasn't horror enough, he then choked the terrified girl into unconsciousness and left her for dead on waste ground. By fortune... Some time later, a passing cyclist heard sounds of someone whimpering in the grass on the side of the road and discovered the injured Julia suffering from exposure. She was rushed to hospital where her life was saved. 
Doctors said later that if she'd been found 20 minutes later, it would have been too late for her. When she'd recovered enough to speak, Julia told police that a stranger in a car who'd said he was her Uncle Len told her to get in so he could drive her to her aunt's house to go and get some Christmas presents. So she got into the car and he st instead took her to this secluded spot, raped her and strangled her with his bare hands. Julia was able to offer a cursory description of the attacker and investigators used her description to create a composite sketch. Armed with this, a massive house-to-house -house search for Uncle Len was launched, but the child snatcher still remained at large. Other girls were spoken to in the area who told of being approached by a man in a big car who called out to them, Mummy said you should come with me. Those girls instead ran away and told their parents, who called the police. But because the girls gave varying descriptions of both man and vehicle, police could gain no further leads. Just over nine months later, and 14 miles away on the 8th of September 1965, Six-year-old Margaret Reynolds set off that Wednesday afternoon to travel the short distance from her home in Aston in Birmingham back to school, having been home for her lunch hour. She never made it back there, because somewhere on the way back to school, Margaret had vanished. She was reported as missing when she didn't get home by four o'clock that afternoon, and within hours of her disappearance, 2,000 people, a mixture of police and volunteers, were involved in a search for her. This search was in vain. Despite a mass police appeal, no trace of Margaret was found. Echoes of the abduction and attempted murder of Julia Taylor rang heavily in the minds of West Midlands police, and fearing that it was a serial sex attacker at large, stepped up the hunt for Margaret. 160 officers set about questioning more than 25,000 people within an eight-square-mile area, but it was difficult. No one had come forward to say that they'd seen anything or they'd heard any screams or sounds of a struggle. Margaret had indeed just vanished. So as the hunt continued, the days turned into weeks, then into months, and then Christmas 1965 came and went for Margaret's heartbroken family. And just a few days after Christmas, almost the last day of 1965, police fears that a serial abductor were at large were realised, and another small girl went missing. 30th of December 1965, and back now in Blockswich, very near to the scene of the abduction and sexual assault of Julia Taylor just over a year before. Five and a half year old Diane Tift had last been seen at about 2pm, when she'd left her grandmother's house in Chapel Street to walk the short distance to her own home in Holly Meadow Avenue. This is just less than a quarter of a mile away and down a straight residential street. By 7pm, when Diane still hadn't returned home, the frantic parents contacted police. Police immediately linked Diane's disappearance with that of Margaret Reynolds, plus the other attack and attempted abductions. All of the girls were primary school aged and of similar appearance. They'd been targeted in heavily built up working class areas at similar times of day, and each had been taken in close proximity to the A34 road, which is an English major road that runs from Hampshire up to Salford in Manchester. Now, as it would be with any missing child, the hunt was massive. Within a day of Diane's disappearance, more than 500 officers from Staffordshire and neighbouring forces were out hunting for her. More than 6,000 homes in blocks which alone were searched, along with derelict buildings, quarries, ponds and sewers, you name it, it was searched. 
but nothing was found. Until two weeks after Diane had gone missing and eight miles away. A colliery worker from Cannock, just seven miles away from Blockswich, had gone out cycling on the morning of the 12th of January 1966 in an area known as Manstey Gully, which is off a disused farm track near a lake called Possel Pool between the villages of Penkridge and Littleton. He stopped hoping to be able to find some rabbits that he could shoot and take home for tea that evening, but instead, to his horror, he came across the body of a young girl. She was lying in a waterlogged drainage ditch, and the cyclist went to raise the alarm, undoubtedly sure that he'd discovered the pitiful remains of the high-profile missing girl. Police arrived at the scene, led by the chief constable of Staffordshire Police himself. That shows just how high-profile the hunt was, and it was sadly confirmed that the body was indeed that of Diane Tift. She was found in a state of undress, and a later post-mortem was to determine that she'd been sexually assaulted, then strangled and suffocated with the hood of her own anorak. But there had been more in the ditch, for when Diane's body was removed, the body of Margaret Reynolds was found lying in the silt directly underneath her. The killer had placed both girls in the exact same spot, three months apart. What kind of monster does that? for a purpose that you don't even want to enter your head. Due to the length of time that Margaret had been laying in the ditch, exposed to the elements, her remains had become skeletonized. There was no way to ascertain a cause of death, although the fact that none of her clothing was found at the scene led to her inquest recording a verdict of murder by person or persons unknown. That must have been an absolutely heartbreaking find, mustn't it? And it's undoubtedly something that no officer involved in the case would ever forget. You would take something like that to your grave, would you? You really, really would. Even to this day, the families of both Margaret and Diane attend the scene periodically to lay flowers there in an act of remembrance to the two girls. Months passed, and despite Scotland Yard sending one of its best detectives, Detective Superintendent Ian Forbes, to assist in the hunt, little progress was made in the search for the killer of Margaret and Diane. Police had worked flat out, convinced that they were looking for a local man, but they just couldn't find him. They either needed a lucky break, perhaps a crucial sighting, or they'd have to wait for him to strike again. Now they were to get both, but not in the order they could have ever wished for. On the 19th of August 1967, at about 2.30pm, seven-year-old Christine Darby was playing with friends in a residential street in Walsall called Camden Street, when a man stopped in a car and asked the child the way to Coldmore Green, a street just a hundred yards away. The children pointed to the direction of Coldmore Street, but the man asked Christine if she could get into the car and show him the way, professing not to understand where they were pointing at and he pushed the passenger door of the car open. Helpful and trusting, Christine got into the car, and the driver reversed out of the street, but to the astonishment of the other children, who'd wisely stayed behind, he turned in the opposite direction to Coldmore Green. Instead, he headed into the direction of Cannock Chase. Following the disappearance of Margaret and Diane, plans called The Stop had been put in place, this was in the event of another child snatch in the Walsall area. Roadblocks would be set up on all routes out of the area immediately, 
no one in and no one out. So when Christine's alarmed friends raised the alarm, this was put into place, and although it worked well and the roadblocks were in place imminently, the abductor had had just too much of a head start and had managed to get free of the area. All police had to go on was that the man had dark hair, was clean-shaven and smartly dressed in his thirties, and was driving what was thought to be a grey A55 or A60 Farina model Austin Cambridge car or Morris Oxford saloon. But detectives believed that they could take this and narrow it down further somewhat, because a piece of information came forward that convinced them they were looking for a local man. One of the children playing with Christine, eight-year-old Nicholas Baldry, volunteered that the man had asked for directions for Karma Green, as opposed to Coldmore Green. Now, Karma Green was how it was pronounced by the locals, and it would have only been pronounced this way by someone who was versed in the local dialect. The head of Staffordshire CID, Detective Chief Superintendent Harry Bailey, was instantly convinced that the killer of Margaret Reynolds and Diane Tift had struck again. And he was as equally convinced about his instincts, which sadly told him that as time passed, Christine wasn't going to be found alive. Whilst a check of possible cars and owners in the local area got underway, the only other option was to begin the search for a body. So at first light on the 20th of August 1967, a mass search of Cannock Chase got underway, but the sheer size of the task was a daunting one. Cannock Chase is nearly a 100 miles square in size, and it's a former artillery range. It's dotted with streams, bogs, ditches and trenches, and that's just the open area of it. A third of its surface was, at the time, closely planted with fir trees which hindered an aerial search and made the undergrowth beneath in a permanent state of semi-darkness. But with no other option but to try, 300 police officers began a fingertip search of the area, starting from the spot in Cannock Chase where the bodies of Margaret and Diane had been found, Manstey Gully. Within a few hours of beginning the search, they made their first tragic find. A pair of white child's knickers were found caught on a tree branch. And although underwear wasn't an uncommon find at the chase because it was a popular area for courting couples, these were children's underwear and they'd clearly not been there for a great length of time. They'd also been repaired at some point on the right leg with blue stitching and were readily identified as belonging to Christine by her grandmother who recognised the repair that she'd made herself. It was a sad find, and on one hand it must have completely dashed hopes of police that Christine would be found alive and well after all, but on the other hand it must have spurred them on to search more, knowing that at least they were looking in the right area, and they'd find her sooner rather than later. The search continued, and as teams of officers raked and cut flat every spot of undergrowth, spools of twine were used to mark off the areas that had been searched. By the end of the first day of searching for Christine, 14 miles of twine had been used. The next day, a forestry worker found a child's black plimsoll amongst the undergrowth three miles away towards Rugeley, which again is quite close to the A34 main road. It was apparent that the plimsoll had been thrown from a car, and again was identified as belonging to Christine. Can you imagine what her family must have been feeling by that time? You couldn't even begin to put yourself into that mindset unless you'd sadly experienced it, could you? 
By the Tuesday morning, the 22nd, the number of people involved in the search had risen to more than 750 people. Three different police forces had volunteered more than 500 officers, and this number was bolstered by 250 military personnel from neighbouring military bases, including some from a place once familiar to myself many years ago, RAF Cosford. After nearly 10 hours of searching, at 5.40pm, a unit of army recruits were searching a coppice of trees known as Plantation 110, and one of them, Private Michael Blundred, called for his colleagues to halt. At his feet, partially covered by ferns, was the semi-clothed body of Christine Darby. Christine was found to have been undressed from the waist down in a hurry, and her jeans were found turned inside out about 30 yards from the body. Tiny blood spots under the skin on her face and throat were noted, along with extensive injuries to the child's genitalia. After the body was photographed in situ, it was removed to the mortuary and a post-mortem was performed by Home Office pathologist Dr Alan Usher. The following morning, he gave police his findings. Christina died at some time on the Saturday, not long after being abducted. Bruising on her left cheek indicated that she'd been suffocated by her killer, using the pressure of his hand to cover her nose and mouth, possibly while stifling her screams. It seemed likely that Christine had then been raped while unconscious or dying, and her body carried up to the hiding place in Plantation 110. A thorough examination of the scene produced tyre tracks that ran for about 140 yards from the heath, along a bridleway and into Plantation 110 itself, ending very close to where Christine was found. Detectives were able to establish that the tracks were fresh, and their car had been driven in and then reversed out after Christine had been left. It had to be the killer's car. A tyre print expert from Pirelli was called in, and from impressions of the tracks taken, he was able to say that they'd been made by a Ford Cortina or Corsair, an Austin A60, or a vehicle with a similar track width. There was, however, too little pattern left on the tyres to be able to identify the make of them. Again, the investigation was massive and linked with the previous two, and police emphasised that they were seeking out a man with a local accent, aged 30 to 40, dark-haired and clean-shaven, who drove a dark-coloured car. 3,000 posters bearing a photograph of tragic Christine were created and displayed throughout the area, and 20,000 leaflets were handed out at police checkpoints to passing motorists in just three days. An appeal to trace anyone who'd been on Cannock Chase on that Saturday to come forward was made, and by process of cross-checking witness recollections, police traced and spoke to the occupants of over 600 vehicles that had been unaccounted for, until only one was left to speak to, the owner of a Volkswagen Beetle. Police believed that if they found the owner of this car, they'd find the killer. Why else would the owner not have come forward? When the owner was eventually traced, he didn't turn out to be the killer, but he did turn out to be a crucial witness. The owner of the vehicle was a local resident named Victor Whitehouse, who walked on Cannock Chase each day and knew the area like the back of his hand. He had indeed been there on that Saturday, but he hadn't come forward because he'd been in a different area of Cannock Chase than the one police were appealing to trace vehicles that had been seen in. He thought it must have been a different vehicle to his own, and so he didn't want to waste police time, that's why he hadn't come forward. When police did speak to him though, 
he turned out to be one or two people who had actually seen the killer of Christine Darby. Victor had been walking near the location where Christine was found, and he'd seen a man leaning on the door of a slate-grey Cambridge or Oxford saloon car parked up on the bridleway where the tyre tracks had been found, the ones leading into Plantation 110. He described a clean-shaven man aged in his thirties with dark hair, and was sure that he would recognise him again. Victor's description in its location and the description of the car tallied with that of another eyewitness, Miss Jean Rawlins. She'd been on a picnic with her husband in the area at the time, and had seen a dark grey car drive past with a male driver. She was adamant that the vehicle was an Austin Cambridge, because it was the same car that her father had. From these eyewitness accounts, police were able to build up a detailed identikit picture of this suspect, which eventually evolved into a crayon-coloured version being drawn by a Birmingham Evening Mail staff artist. The picture showed a man in his thirties or forties, with dark swept-back hair, a furrowed forehead, thick dark eyebrows, high cheekbones, a bulbous nose, and teeth that protruded through his lips slightly. He sounds delightful, doesn't he? What a good-looking fella. This was to be the first ever coloured identikit poster used in British police history. So combined with this, and in what was at the time to be the biggest vehicle check in history, police set about tracing every A55 and A60 car. Now to do this, this was in the days long before the DVLA Computerised Licensing Centre, so detectives had to search through 1,375,000 files from local taxation offices. And if you've ever had dealings with DVLA today, trust me, they haven't got any quicker or any more efficient than that. They are an absolute disgrace. From this search, 25,000 vehicle details of A55s and A60s were selected, and the owners interviewed. This is on top of 39,021 houses in Walsall being visited, and 28,081 interviews of males between the ages of 21 and 50 carried out. Now with good leads to go on, they were looking for a local man, they had a detailed description such as the identikit picture, and several eyewitness reports of a car, it was thought that their man would be found in this troll. Yet despite all of this, once all their actions had been carried out, they were still no closer to having the killer in custody. The inquiry was that massive that with hindsight, it was in danger of drowning in its own paperwork. The card index files alone held more than a million and a half cards. There were no computerized databases or DNA profiling, and there was the danger that the killer was already somewhere in that lot and had been missed with cross-checking, a right paper maze, and a bit of a nightmare. In many ways, although unknown at that time, it was an ominous forewarner of the problems that the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry would be beset with some years later. It continued in this vein for nearly the remainder of the year, with police working diligently and flat out. But like many other inquiries, it was to be a combination of a lucky break and the killer's own uncontrollable urges that was to break the case open and to lead to the arrest of the monster of Cannock Chase. The night before bonfire night 1968, the Alton family, who lived at the time just behind Walsall Railway Station, were building a bonfire on waste ground a quarter of a mile away in Bridgman Street. There were eight children in the family of ages ranging from six to nineteen, and all had been busily collecting spare wood that night, 
but by about 7pm it was dark and the only two who were still working on it were nine-year-old Stephen Alton and his ten-year-old sister Margaret. Their mother Marjorie had been with them, but she'd just returned home at that moment to fetch something and so had left them for a few minutes. At about 7.45pm, a car pulled up on a garage forecourt opposite where the bonfire was being built, and a man got out and approached the children, paying compliments to them for building such a good bonfire. He then asked them if they wanted some fireworks, and when Margaret said that she did, he told her, They're over here, follow me to my car. Once he had the driver's door open, he pointed to the interior of the vehicle, but Margaret couldn't see any fireworks, instead could only see newspapers spread out on the seat, and then the man tried to force her into the vehicle. When she resisted, he tried to persuade her into the car by saying that he would open the other door for her, and walked around the vehicle. Margaret took this opportunity to hurry away, and a woman who'd been queuing for fish and chips at the time, Wendy Lane, had seen all of this unfold. She called Margaret over to her, and then noted that the man had now gotten back into the car. He sat for a moment with his head slumped over the wheel leaning forward, then drove off. Wendy did, however, make a note of the registration number and general description of the car, then went to the nearest telephone box to report this, and at 8.16pm spoke to police to report what she'd seen. This information was like electricity, and detectives hunting the triple killer was soon speaking to Mrs Lane, hopeful that they finally had a break in the case. When she was shown pictures of vehicles, she picked out a Ford Corsair as being the vehicle that the man was driving, green with a white roof, and gave the registration number 429LOP. Now this presented a problem, because a check revealed that that registration belonged to a Grey Anglia in Yorkshire that was immediately ruled out of the investigation. So if detectives felt a bit crestfallen that their witness had got the wrong number, they were about to be rewarded. Before disregarding the number, they tried all possible permutations of it. Two of these were found to belong to motorcycles, and one was found to belong to a green Ford Corsair with a white roof. The Ford Corsair was registered to a Walsall man, 39-year-old father of two, Raymond Leslie Morris. A check revealed that Morris lived at Flat 20 in Regent's House and Green Lane, which is in sight of the rear yard of Walsall Police Headquarters. On the following day, detectives visited the fourth floor flat, but Morris's wife told them that her husband was in work. Morris worked as a foreman engineer at LJ Taylor Precision Engineering in the nearby town of Oldbury, so detectives went and visited him at his work and had him accompany them to Walsall Police HQ for questioning. Morris drove them there himself in his Ford Corsair, yet never asked either detective what the questions would be about. Both were immediately struck by just how closely Morris resembled the identical picture of the suspect, and they put it to him that the previous evening he'd attempted to entice away a young girl. Morris's response was, Who told you this? It's too ridiculous for words. It wasn't me. I'd be home at that time. I left work about seven o'clock and I always arrive home at the same time. You can ask my wife if you don't believe me. During questioning, Morris was to give several answers to questions that made detectives more and more convinced that they had the monster of the A34 sat in front of them. Things that were just too coincidental or just didn't add up and served to arouse suspicion. For example, when he was asked about the route that he took home from work, 
Morris was quick to describe a route that was nowhere near the bonfire site, despite passing it being the shortest and most logical route for him to take. He also let slip that on Saturdays he washed his car at a car wash just yards from where Christine Darby was taken from. Morris was then asked to take part in an identity parade, which he at first refused but consented to after consulting his solicitor. During the identity parade, Wendy Lane studied each man intently, but failed to identify the man that she'd seen. Morris had appeared agitated, but he visibly relaxed once it was finished. He was then released as there was insufficient evidence to charge him. But police were privately convinced that Morris was their man, and when his name was checked, it was found to have cropped up several times in the investigation into the murder of Christine Darby. He'd been interviewed numerous times about it, but appeared to have an unshakable alibi. Morris claimed that he'd arrived home at his standard time of 2pm on the day that Christine had disappeared, then had had a slight bite to eat, and then had gone shopping with his wife for the remainder of the afternoon before going to his mother-in-law's. His wife Carol had confirmed this alibi several times, first 17 days after the murder of Christine. Although detectives had accepted his wife's corroboration, they wrote on the back of the interview form, Very good likeness to the identikit, not satisfied with this man due to the unsatisfactory alibi of wife alone. Morris was interviewed again by two different detectives because of this a few days later, but gave the same story although he claimed not to be able to remember any of the shops that he visited with his wife on that afternoon. Then again, six months later, when door-to-door inquiries were being made, he was again spoken to. This time, Morris had reacted with annoyance, saying, I've already given this information twice to your lot. I don't see why I should go through it all again. Are you trying to catch me out? If you think I'm going to tell you a different story this time, you are wrong. On top of this, at the time Christine Darby was murdered, Morris drove a slate grey Austin A55 Cambridge, and at the time of the abduction and attempted murder of Julia Taylor, he drove a two-tone Vauxhall Crester with a spotlight on the driver's door, identical to a car described as being seen in the area and the car that Julia had gotten into. Pieces fallen into place here or why? Probing his background, they learned that Morris had been born in Walsall on the 13th of August 1929 and had attended school nearby to Camden Street, coincidentally where Christine Darby had lived. He'd lived in the area his entire life, so was a local, and he was considered good-looking, with more than one person claiming him to resemble film star Burt Lancaster. He was of above-average intelligence with a reported IQ of 120 and had a passion and hobby for photography of which his work was described as being that of a professional standard. Meticulous in appearance, a non-smoker and neat and tidy by nature, Morris also enjoyed writing poetry and reading aloud, and was a good mimic. He loved to impersonate, with his favourite impressions being that of Humphrey Bogart, or fictional character Simon Templar from The Saint. During 1946, Morris met his first wife Muriel Weaver at a local factory where both worked at the time, and during 1948, the same year that the couple married, he joined the RAF to do his national service. Upon leaving the services a few years later, Morris found it difficult to settle and tried many jobs in his search for something with a future. He worked in shops and stores, and he even tried his hand as a door-to-door salesman for the John Bloom organisation, selling twin-tub washing machines. 
Now I remember my mum having one of those when I was a youngster. The common thread wherever Morris worked was that he built up a good reputation for himself. He was punctual and helpful, and all of his past employers held him in high regard. Eventually, he became a self-taught engineer and landed a £2,000 a year job at LJ Taylor Precision Engineering Firm in Oldbury. Morris impressed people who knew him with the fact that he never lost his temper. Indeed, most people found him to be emotionless, and although he was punctual and reliable, his colleagues found him to be quite standoffish and not friendly at all. At home, it was a different story, with Muriel later describing how he could shift from sunny charm to icy stoicism in an instant, saying, Often when we were together, watching television, he'd suddenly say, Strip, and if I didn't obey at once, his eyes would go cold and his cheeks very white. The marriage, which produced children, lasted until December 1959, when the couple separated. Morris then began withholding support payments to his wife and children, until Muriel agreed to let him visit once or twice a week for sex, forcing her to bend over a table so that he could take her in the animal position. Delightfully. Some sources claim that Morris then divorced her on the grounds of adultery when she had another man's child a year later. Others claim that she divorced him because of his violent temperament towards her. Either way, the couple were divorced by 1960. Four years later, at the age of 35, Morris married for the second time in September 1964, this time to a 21-year-old woman called Carol Horsley. Carol must never have brought out the sadistic, animalistic side of Morris because she described him as being a tender and thoughtful husband. Although Morris had no criminal record, in October 1966 he had been the subject of a complaint about indecent assault. Two schoolgirls aged 10 and 11 had been playing truant when they were invited by Morris back to his flat at Regent House and were taken into different rooms where he undressed them and took indecent photographs of them. Because the girls had been in different rooms, they couldn't corroborate each other's testimony and the case was dropped, with no charges being brought against Morris. So putting this together with all of the other circumstantial evidence, detectives who'd been shadowing and studying him for ten days were by November the 14th, 1968, convinced that Raymond Leslie Morris was the monster of Cannock Chase and it was decided to arrest him. At 7.30am on the morning of November the 15th, Morris left his flat and got into his car to head to work. He'd only travelled a few hundred yards down the road when he was flagged down by a Panda patrol car for a routine licence check. As Morris was fumbling for his licence, he didn't notice detectives that had been shadowing him walk up to the car and was taken by surprise when they opened the driver's door and snatched the keys out of the ignition. Detective Chief Inspector Pat Malloy, head of Canuck CID, told Morris that he was being arrested on suspicion of the murder of Christine Darby. Morris looked stunned and then exclaimed, Oh God, was it my wife? He was taken to Stafford Police Station, whilst officers managed to locate and retrieve the Austin Cambridge that Morris had been driving at the time of Christine's murder. The car was examined thoroughly but no forensic evidence was found to link Christine with the vehicle. Morris was to refuse to admit or deny any involvement, and years later a former police officer who interviewed him, DC John Lowbridge, recalls that Morris took his time over every question, even when asked his name, saying, 
He just looked at me. It might have been four or five seconds, but it seemed like a minute and a half before he replied, I'm Raymond Morris. There was this big silence again when I asked him where he lived, so you just couldn't build up any sort of rapport at all. He never gave me the impression that he was a friendly sort of person. Next to be questioned was Morris's wife, Carol. Her alibi evidence for Morris had now become suspect. On the same day that Morris was arrested, Carol was visited at her place of work, a business premises where she was employed as a wages clerk. When told that her husband had been arrested, she broke down crying and accompanied officers back to the flat at Regent's house so it could be searched. And after a thorough search in which police had taken away several boxes of Morris's clothing and possessions, Carol was taken to Hednesford Police Station for further questioning. After several hours of questioning, she admitted that she'd given Morris a false alibi. Although she claimed this was inadvertently, she said, I said at the time my husband got home at his usual time, about two o'clock, on the afternoon of Saturday, August the 19th, and that we went shopping together all afternoon. I realise now that this could not have been so, but I was not telling lies. As I've said, I trusted my husband implicitly, and if I was mistaken, it was an honest mistake and with no intention to cover up for my husband. She then told that Morris had not arrived home that Saturday until at least 4.30pm. Following this revelation, DCS Forbes reapproached Morris and began by asking him again if he had anything to say about the murder of Christine Darby, to which Morris simply shrugged. He shrugged again when he'd asked to admit or deny if he was responsible, and then he was painstakingly taken through his original statement point by point, with DCS Forbes getting Morris to agree that he had said he had arrived home by 2pm. He then revealed to him the new evidence, saying, Mr. Morris, you are not telling me the truth. I have interviewed your wife, and she tells me that you did not arrive home that afternoon until at least 4.30. Morris went white and put his head in his hands, saying, Oh God, oh God, she wouldn't, she wouldn't. He was then twice asked to take part in an identity parade, which he refused, claiming that he was finished. When he was asked why he wouldn't take part, Morris replied, I should have thought it was obvious. I've got everything to lose. If you're as confident as you're making out, you'd better charge me and have done with it. Police did just that the following morning, after Morris had been positively identified by Victor Whitehouse as the man that he'd seen on the bridal path near Plantation 110 on the day Christine had been abducted and murdered. After he'd appeared at Cannock Magistrates Court, Morris was remanded in custody to Birmingham's Winston Green Prison, where upon his arrival, when he was being strip-searched, prison officers noticed that bizarrely, Morris was wearing a distinct silver Timex wristwatch around his ankle. It was removed from him and handed over to detectives, who were confused as to why Morris should have tried to hide such an item. The answer was soon forthcoming. The search of Morris's flat had produced lots of evidence, including cameras and photographic paraphernalia, and among these was a Kodak box, sealed with tape and marked, only to be opened in a darkened room. The box was opened in a police darkroom, and inside were found several stills of homemade child pornography involving a girl who turned out to be just five years old. The child in the photographs was a relative. She was Carol Morris's niece, who had twice in the past stayed in the Morris's flat with her elder sister for a week. On both occasions, 
the girl had arrived home with sore genitalia, including bleeding and a small tear. The girl's mother had suspected nothing at the time, and the child had not explained how this had happened, but the photographs explained all that needed to be explained. In several of these, a man was performing indecent acts with the child whose genitalia was exposed. In some he was touching her, in others his penis was exposed. The man's face could not be seen in any of the pictures, but his hands clearly could. A scar on one of the knuckles matched the scar that Morris had in the exact same place, and in each picture the man was wearing a distinct silver Timex watch. Closer examination of the pictures, which is a horrific, unenviable job, I'm sure, revealed marks on a wall in the background that were found to match marks on the wall in the spare bedroom of Morris's flat. Carol Morris was shown these pictures, and after the horror when she realised that they'd indeed been taken in her home while she was in another room at the time, she decided to give evidence against her husband at his upcoming trial. Morris was further charged with these offences, the total against him being the murder of Christine Darby, the two counts of indecent assault on the girl in the photographs, and the attempted abduction of Margaret Alton. Morris's trial began less than three months later at Staffordshire Aziz's on February the 10th, 1969, where he pleaded not guilty to the, to the charges of murder and indecent assault, but surprisingly pleaded guilty to the charge of attempted abduction. The case against Morris relied heavily on circumstantial evidence. There was no forensic evidence found linking him to the murder. Prosecuting counsel Brian Gibbons QC showed the jury the disturbing and disgusting photographs taken of the children in Morris's spare room, telling them in a powerful statement, the reason that series of photographs is put before you is not mere prejudice or to show you that Morris is a disgusting fellow, it's a question of identification. You have to ask yourself this. What sort of man murdered Christine Darby in that coppice on Cannock Chase? First of all, he was a man who resembles, to use a neutral word, Morris so closely that several people identify him. Secondly, he was a man who had a grey car on Austin Cambridge and Morris had a Cambridge which was great. Thirdly, the man who murdered Christine Darby had a tendency to take away a little girl who he did not know in a car to assault her sexually, and probably with his finger, because the evidence is that no male sperm was found. The pathologist who examined Christine's body, Dr. Usher, testified in court to support this. He described the terrible injuries the poor girl had suffered finding a massive tear in the child's genitals that had been caused by something being forced into a vagina, possibly the sexual penetration of a grown man or by the forcible insertion of fingers. Several witnesses then gave evidence identifying Morris's vehicle as being the one that they'd seen in the area of Cannock Chase at around the time of Christine's murder, and both Victor Whitehouse and Jean Rawlins identified Morris in court as being the man that they'd seen on the bridal path that day. They were certain about this, and Morris's extreme likeness to the identikit picture, when they were challenged by Kenneth Minot QC, who was defending. And then it came to the turn of Morris's wife, Carol. Morris glowered at her as she took the stand. Carol admitted that she'd known that she was giving wrong times about her husband's arrival home on the day of the murder, and asked why she'd not corrected her husband when he had told police a lie about what time he arrived back. She replied, 
because he came home and ate his meal and acted normally without any sign of emotion or anything. I only agreed with what he said. I couldn't believe he was the person responsible. He actually came home at 4.30. He usually arrived home by 2 o'clock. Morris himself took the stand on the fifth day of the trial and gave evidence on his own behalf for nearly five hours. He made various claims, including that he'd been denied access to legal representation, he'd been assaulted and threatened by police, and that they'd fabricated words that he had never said. He also maintained his claims about arriving home at the usual time that Saturday, and went on to claim that his wife was now lying. All of these claims were strongly denied by police. Morris was then asked about and admitted taking the obscene photographs, and his defence counsel asked him his present feelings about them. Morris replied, They are revolting. I am disgusted, sir. Cross-examining him about these photographs, Mr Gibbons asked Morris, What you did to that girl was in some respects the same thing that must have happened to Christine Darby, to which Morris coldly replied, I don't follow. He was then asked if the pictures had given him sexual satisfaction, to which Morris replied, It's difficult to say, it all happened in about two minutes. They accidentally exposed themselves, and I took advantage of this to take some quick snaps. Now wouldn't you want someone who says something like that to swing? Isn't that absolutely vile? There was a moment then of high drama in the court, and there was a sudden commotion in the public gallery and a girl in her early teens cried out, That's him, that's the man who did it to me. The girl was hurried away in tears by a court usher, and the jury were never allowed to know who it was. That girl was Julia Taylor. Closing for the prosecution, Mr Gibbons claimed that the identification of Morris by witnesses was the clinching factor against him, and the obscene photographs he'd taken had been shown to demonstrate just how similar the offences were, claiming, If you think these two offences are so alike, then is it not the hallmark of the man who committed murder, and is it not the hallmark of this man, Raymond Leslie Morris? Mr Minot for the defence countered this by saying, The prosecution has endeavoured to support what is a pretty weak case so far as identification is concerned, by introducing that series of revolting, disgusting photographs taken by this man about a year later. It has, unhappily and inevitably, created very deep prejudices. It is a case of mistaken identity to accuse Morris. But the jury had obviously heard enough, for after deliberating for just an hour and 47 minutes, they returned with unanimous verdict of guilty on the charges of murder, attempted abduction and indecent assault crowd of 300 people who'd gathered outside the court in anticipation of Morris's life sentence were not to be disappointed. Mr Justice Ashworth wasted few words on Raymond Morris, simply passing a life sentence upon him for Christine's murder, three years for the attempted abduction of Margaret Orton and 12 months for the indecent assault, telling him that he would serve a minimum of 30 years. Morris showed no emotion as the judge said, there must be many mothers whose hearts will beat more lightly as a result of this verdict. Before he was led away, Morris gave a long glaring look of hate at his wife, who was sat in tears in the public gallery, devastated. I mean, you must be if you find out that your other half has suddenly committed such horror like that. He was then taken to Winston Green Prison, 
before being transferred to the maximum security wing at Durham Prison. He was placed in maximum security, not because he was thought to be an escape risk, but because any crimes against children are considered so vile amongst the criminal elements that savage treatment for any such individual responsible for these is guaranteed in prison. So it was more for his own protection, and he was housed on a landing in Durham Prison that was earmarked for such individuals, which at the time contained just one other prisoner. The other prisoner was Ian Brady. Following Morris's conviction, police closed the files on the officially unsolved murders of Margaret Reynolds, Diane Tift, and the attempted murder of Julia Taylor. Morris was never charged with these killings due to lack of evidence, but was at the time considered the prime suspect, and has continually always been linked to the two deaths. The families of both Margaret and Diane have always considered him to be the man responsible. Detective Chief Superintendent Forbes showed that police agreed also when he told reporters on the steps of Staffordshire Aziz's on the day Morris was jailed for life. I think I speak for all of my colleagues when I say none of us have a shred of doubt that Raymond Morris killed all three girls found on Cannock Chase. Following the trial, the Austin Cambridge that Morris had used to carry Christine Darby away to a murder was returned to its new owner, but disgusted, he said he never wanted to drive it again and sold it on. It was bought by a Midlands car dealer with one express purpose. On March the 29th, 1969, the Austin Cambridge, registration number 158BOC, was moved onto the forecourt of the dealership, soaked in petrol and set on fire in a public ritual cremation. Such was the feeling of revulsion that Morris's crimes had invoked in the area. Morris refused to admit culpability in any crimes or to express any remorse over the years, and had indeed maintained a silence and professed his innocence. Told that he'd have to serve a minimum of 30 years, each parole review beginning from 1999 denied granting him this, and by 2010 he was still imprisoned, having served almost 42 years. He was at the time one of the longest serving prisoners in the UK. In November 2010, he was granted the right to a legal review of his case, with Morris claiming that his conviction had been based on unreliable identification evidence, but a ruling in December 2010 upheld his conviction, and it was refused to go to the Court of Appeal. He broke his 42-year silence in April 2011 to claim that he was innocent of the crime, and in a statement issued to the Birmingham Sunday Mercury newspaper, Morris said, no acquisitions of guilt can ever compensate the loss that the families involved must feel, but I will always maintain that I am not responsible for the murder of Christine Darby, and hopefully my fight for justice will uncover the truth. I can only say over and over again, I didn't do it, and I hope that someone will listen. Shortly after this statement, Morris's health declined due to kidney failure and chronic myeloid leukaemia. Over the next few years, he was given a series of treatments including regular dialysis, a biopsy and blood transfusions, and during these asked staff not to resuscitate him in the event of a cardiac or respiratory arrest. On March the 1st, 2014, Morris signed a disclaimer rejecting active medical treatment and was transferred to the medical wing of HMP Preston in Lancashire, where he was being held. 
He died 10 days later on March the 11th, 2014, aged 84 years old and having served 45 years in prison. Few people, if any, mourned Morris, but there was public outrage when the Ministry of Justice released details of the cost of Morris's taxpayer-funded funeral in response to a Freedom of Information request. It was revealed that a total spend of £2,686 had been spent on the cremation of the killer, including a £15 floral tribute. A spokesman for the MOJ said, A single floral tribute provided on behalf of the prison service is considered a reasonable cost in prison of funeral arrangements. This is considered to be moral and decent in the circumstances. Yet as moral and decent as abducting, raping and killing a seven-year-old girl, isn't it? And attempting to snatch countless others. Disgusting. Following Morris's death, Maureen Freeman, a former Staffordshire police officer who'd been involved in the hunt, which was at the time the biggest in UK history, and eclipsed even that of the Moores murders, was interviewed about the case. The 69-year-old from Cannock said, The time we'd put into it and the pieces of evidence we put together, I was very clear. Everything was put together to confirm we had the right person. As a team, we were so determined to carry on working in order to get our man day and night, it felt like we were working 24 hours a day non-stop. The phones wouldn't stop ringing. There were loads of calls coming in with cars and registration numbers and everything was gone through like a fine tooth comb. She said that Morris was always suspected of the other two deaths but told how there was not enough evidence to charge him. Piecing the information together over a period of time led her to believe that he was guilty of the other killings despite his attempts to clear his name. She said, there are things that didn't come out to the public, and certain things still haven't come out. It was a gathering of evidence statements, and different things all rolled into one. I will never forget those cold, calculating eyes. He just stood there staring. No remorse, nothing. He was the most cold, calculating man I have ever stood next to. Taxpayers' money should not be spent in this way on that particular prisoner, especially buying flowers for him. I'm sure the families of his victims would be disgusted. Canuck Chase will never forget what he did. Morris was that reviled right up until his death that I'm sure that Canuck Chase won't forget. And I'd be inclined to agree with Maureen there, wouldn't you? What would be the chances of it being anything other than Morris, really? And had Morris committed others, perhaps elsewhere? Now, a friend of the show, former police intelligence officer Chris Clark, now a published true crime researcher and author and who runs a site called Armchair Detective, has been instrumental in assisting me with creating this episode and his research of Raymond Morris has highlighted at least two other possible crimes that Morris should be looked at as a person of interest in. Six-year-old Carol Stevens had been sent out to the corner shop on an errand by her mother on April 7th, 1959 when she was abducted in the Cathays area of Cardiff sexually assaulted and then strangled. The body was discovered in a stream 60 miles away from her home near the village of Horeb near Llanetli. Between her disappearance and discovery there'd been a frantic nationwide search for the girl, with police interviewing about 10,000 people, checking nearly 3,000 cars and taking more than 1,100 statements during the hunt for her, and one chilling fact was later established. Sometime earlier, Carol had told some of her friends, I have a new uncle who's taken me for lovely rides in his motor car. 
Her friend, Kevin Northcott, had nearly caught the killer after collecting the number plates of all the cars in the area on the day that she disappeared, a pastime that he enjoyed doing. But he didn't take the number of a green car where a man in his thirties was sat waiting near Carol's home. Now while this sounds tenuous, maybe, it could also be a precursor for the attacks known to have been committed by Morris. He would have been the right age, had a preference for changing cars, and it's possible that if he was a travelling washing machine salesman at the time, he had reason to travel and could have been in Cardiff at the time. Had Carol been groomed at first and then murdered? On August the 14th, 1966, ten-year-old Jane Taylor disappeared near Cannock Chase and was never seen alive again. Her body was found in February 1972 in Tlanfyrfecan, North Wales and a nine-year-old boy found a skull in a lonely woodland. This led police to uncover Jane's body 90 miles away from her home in a shallow grave. A signet ring found with the body was identified as one belonging to Jane. Now many texts and reports associate this crime with the Cannock Chase murders, and because of the proximity of her disappearance to the A34, Jane's name is consistently linked with Raymond Morris, who is now widely considered to be responsible for her disappearance. But another man named William Ian Copeland was later convicted of a murder in 1975. Information available about Jane's case is virtually non-existent, although I did find a blog site which has pieced together what info there is available, and why Copeland's conviction may not be safe. A link to it will be in the show notes as ever this week. Now I cannot in any way say that Morris is responsible for either murder, he was never charged with either crime but it does remain that Jane's disappearance was from a location very close to Morris's hunting ground, in between the murders of Margaret and Diane and Christine. Morris had a proven track record of attempting to entice young girls into his car, the action that led to his capture, and years later others came forward to say that Morris had attempted to lure them away. Sisters Wendy and Lorraine Ellsmore told a newspaper in 2010 for the very first time about the day they came face to face with pure evil when they escaped Morris's clutches. Wendy said, We should not have been in Cannock. At the time there was a large field with a pool beside it. That's where we headed. Suddenly a man beckoned to them. I remember he said, Do you want to come with me? And we said, No. Then he said, You've got to come with me because your mum has sent me to pick you up. Lorraine knew it was a lie because our mum didn't know we were there. Their mother, gripped by paranoia following the news of the child murders on the chase, was oblivious to her children's whereabouts and so could not have sent the stranger. The girls fled in fear, but thankfully were not pursued. Lorraine and Wendy later matched the man who approached them with the uncannily accurate identical image on posters, and when Morris was convicted, pictures of him only cemented their worst fears. Wendy added, Lorraine told my mother when his picture appeared on the telly. We were too worried about what she'd do to tell her at the time. I don't think mum did anything about it. And that's just people who came forward years later. How many others perhaps long buried something like that? The Cannock Chase murders have been featured in several television documentaries over the years, and there are a number of factual texts available about them. Links to some can be found in the show notes. But they're also mentioned in fictional text as well, most notably being referred to in David Peace's novel 1974, which is the first book in the Red Riding series, and the later television adaptation Red Riding, 
It's both a fantastic book and fantastic series. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Set in West Yorkshire around the time of the Yorkshire Ripper Inquiry. Fantastic series. While this won the praise of critics, a proposed amateur dramatic production entitled Morris, the Canuck Chase Murders caused uproar and anger amongst the family of the murdered girls. This was planned just a few years ago by a Pie Green based group known as the Tower Players, with Pie Green being very close to where the bodies of the three girls had been found. An online petition, led by Diane Tift's niece Gemma Tift, was launched to get the production halted, which attracted more than 400 signatures and pledges that those still scarred by Morris's vile crimes would stage a placard-waving demo if the play was performed. Gemma told the Sunday Mercury newspaper, It's an utter disgrace that they can make a play about the murders, and we are not alone. Our petition currently has more than 400 signatures. If the play is staged for three days, we will protest for three days. The play was subsequently cancelled as a result of this backlash, to which Gemma said, This is fantastic news. I'm so overwhelmed, I'm fighting back tears. If the play had been staged, it would have broken the families. The poor families, still to this day, are probably undoubtedly broken enough. Perhaps it's knowing what monstrous crimes Raymond Morris had committed that swayed this for me, but I'm always struck by just how evil he looked. Google image the scumbag if you don't already know what he looks like and see if you agree. He just looks a wrong un without knowing anything that he's done. Of course, he can't be named as the killer of Margaret and Diane, or the attempted killer of Julia, because he was never charged with these offences. But the fact that their files were closed upon his conviction speaks volumes, and I'd be inclined to agree, like the girls' families and Julia herself, that the devil that caused so much hurt and horror is now rotten in hell after being caged for the remainder of his life. You can but hope so anyway. Thankfully, but perhaps sadly also, we're more aware today of horrors such as Morris that stalk the streets and keep children in sight a lot more than we did years ago. It makes you shudder to think, especially like someone of my age, that we used to go out playing for hours on end so far away from home and you never had a fear or a care in the world or anything. Tales such as the monster of Cannock Chase prove that that fear should have been very real and it still remains out there, despite the protection we try to give to the most vulnerable members of our society, our children. Such a horrific and sad case, this one, and please spare thoughts for the families of each girl. So what are your thoughts, then? Was it Morris for all three, and perhaps more? Let me know. The discussion thread is now up there on the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group. Links to that and the other social media the Patreon page and the contact details are with the show notes as ever. Now I know this one was a disturbing case that may leave a vile taste and I do hope that you listen to something a bit more pleasant straight after this to cleanse the palate, but I can't pull any punches with it. It's the nature of the beast sometimes with true crime. There's no such thing as a nice crime and especially one that involves children. I know they're the worst of the worst, but I hope you found the episode informative. It had to be a bit graphic because, as I've said before, it's all or nothing and you need to convey details just to express the horror of what this monster was like. Thank you very much for joining me and sticking with the episode anyway, and I shall be back soon with another tale. So till then, this is Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all a happy and safe week, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care, guys, and goodbye for now.